This is reaction. Movements, moments, and monsters of the reactionary right. The Business Plot, Part 2. Un-American Activities. The 17,000 veterans parked right outside his door were secretly controlled by the Communist Party and were just on the verge of overthrowing the U.S. government. The veterans' movement as a whole was a public enemy. At least, that's what President Herbert Hoover was being told by his Army Chief of Staff Douglas MacArthur and his Director of the Bureau of Investigation, J. Edgar Hoover. No relation. J. Edgar Hoover saw scheming Jewish communists everywhere, including in the 43,000 demonstrators who had gathered in Washington, D.C. in 1932, the so-called Bonus Expeditionary Force. In 1924, the World War Adjusted Compensation Act had passed, which awarded veterans of the Great War a certificate that could be redeemed for payments in 1945. The specifics of the bill are sort of complicated, but for our purposes, here's the scene in 1932. It's the Great Depression. Everyone's broke. Veterans especially are doing very badly, many of them disabled from the war and unable to work. And given that the circumstances have very much changed in the last eight years, they could really use that bonus. Not in 1945, but now. In cash. So they asked for it the only way they knew how. They occupied a muddy, swampy area of D.C., They built some very ramshackle camps out of basically trash and used their presence to make their demands known. They held daily parades and assembled outside the Capitol building just as the Senate voted down the bonus bill that would have paid their benefits. Smedley Butler himself showed up to give a rousing speech about how they needed to stick together to keep up their fight and to remain, peacefully, in the camp until their demands were met. And if they weren't met, the men should go back home and vote out anyone who had opposed the bonus. He told the crowd, You hear folks call you fellows tramps, but they didn't call you that in 17 and 18. I never saw such fine soldiers. I never saw such discipline. You have as much right to lobby here as the United States Steel Corporation. So, they stayed. President Hoover didn't care for this very much. It was, you might say, not a good look. He was already really unpopular. Hell, the public was calling the camps of poor and unemployed people all around the country Hoovervilles. And it's worth noting that this term was coined by a Democratic Party official, probably some of the best political PR of the century. But between J. Edgar Hoover and General MacArthur whispering to him about secret communists pretending to be veterans and training to overthrow the government, well, he felt like he had to do something. So, first, he sent in the police. They fired into the crowd of veterans and killed two people, but the encampment still didn't disperse. Then he sent in the army, led by three officers, whose names you may have even heard of. Douglas MacArthur, George Patton, and Dwight D. Eisenhower. MacArthur led the attack dressed in full uniform, which Eisenhower objected to, since it wasn't really appropriate for a domestic engagement and certainly not one against veterans. But as was often the case, MacArthur didn't really care what he thought. He even referred to himself in the third person because Douglas MacArthur was a vain, arrogant weirdo. 
He shouted, MacArthur has decided to go into active command in the field. A huge contingent followed him. 200 mounted cavalry, a machine gun detachment, 300 infantry, five tanks. It was a major show of force. That turned into an even bigger use of force. At first, the Bonus Army veterans thought it was a display that the U.S. Army was putting on in support of them in the bonus, and they all cheered at the sight. Then the cavalry turned and charged them, trampling them with horses, beating them with the flat sides of their sabers, prodding them with bayonets. They lobbed tear gas grenades into the crowd, which sparked fires everywhere. Keep in mind, there were also women and children among the demonstrators. The Baltimore Sun wrote, Men and women were ridden down indiscriminately. Nothing like this cavalry charge has ever been witnessed in Washington. The mad dash of these armed horsemen against twenty to 30,000 people who were guilty of nothing more atrocious than standing on private property observing the scene. The Associated Press reported, It was like a scene out of the 1918 No Man's Land. Even though President Hoover had forbidden the troops from entering the actual encampments of the Bonus Army, MacArthur ordered the army in anyway. With grenades and tanks, they destroyed the camps. One reporter described the burning settlement as being engulfed in a blaze so big that it lighted the whole sky, a nightmare come to life. Meanwhile, the president watched from his window in the White House, wondering what the hell had gone wrong. And Major Patton was leading his cavalry troops into the camp to finish the destruction and kick out the remaining veterans. One of them, Joseph Angelo, had been awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for saving Patton's life in World War I. President Hoover had the bad fortune of being elected in 1929, the year that started the Great Depression. All seemed well and fine in the beginning. He beat his Democratic opponent Al Smith in a landslide, he was the third straight Republican president in a row, and at his inaugural address he declared, I have no fears for the future of our country. It is bright with hope. The Roaring Twenties had been marked by what seemed like unlimited growth, and the stock market continued to soar after Hoover was elected. But under the veneer of cheap consumer goods and high stock values, there were warning signs of a collapse. Market shares were way overvalued. Bankers and regulators had warned Hoover and President Coolidge before him that this unchecked market speculation was bound to lead to financial catastrophe. Which it did, on October 29, 1929, a date so infamous that it has its own name, Black Tuesday. But Hoover was a Republican's Republican, and he wasn't interested in interfering with the Federal Reserve or imposing any new regulations. So not only did he not act to prevent the collapse of Wall Street, but Doing something about all of the other factors that worsened the soon-to-be Great Depression, like runaway monopolies and income inequality, well, that was just big government intervention, and he wasn't going to mess with the laissez-faire market forces that had made the last 10 years so successful. He felt that it was up to local governments and charitable organizations to help individual people, and that putting the poor and unemployed on the dole would weaken the country. Blah, 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 probably all sounds familiar. Hoover wanted instead to strengthen businesses and financial institutions so that people could trust in the market again and find gainful employment. 
But that approach didn't really do much to curb unemployment or put money in people's pockets. So, without any significant government assistance, the Depression got worse and worse, and Hoover became less and less popular. So when General MacArthur called a press conference as the ruins of the Bonus Army camp still smoldered, he sealed the fate of Hoover's re-election campaign. It is my opinion that had the president not acted today, had he permitted this thing to go on for 24 hours more, he would have been faced with a grave situation which would have caused a real battle. Had he let it go another week, I believe the institutions of our government would have been severely threatened. With that, MacArthur placed the blame for the whole thing right in Hoover's lap. And even though the president had explicitly told MacArthur not to enter the camp, even though the general had directly defied his orders, Hoover didn't say a thing. He didn't even reprimand him. Public support for the veterans soared, as did hatred of Hoover. Franklin Delano Roosevelt also won in a landslide election. And he's actually where we get the notion of the first hundred days of a presidency. His were pretty incredible. When he took office, a quarter of the country's workforce was unemployed. Industrial production had fallen by half in just three years. Food prices had plummeted, and farmers were in dire straits. Two million people were homeless. So he decided to do exactly the opposite of Hoover's approach. He regulated, he spent, And perhaps most importantly, he suspended the gold standard. Now, I am not an economist, not by a long shot. And I am not going to sit here and pretend to understand the gold standard beyond the most basic principles. Here's the best I can do. Under the gold standard, currency is directly backed by gold. You can walk into a bank and say, gold please, and they will take your paper money or coinage and give you a fixed amount of gold for it. When there is significant deflation, when the value of money increases as it did during the early years of the Great Depression, there isn't much the Federal Reserve can do about it without losing gold to foreign countries and decreasing the money supply. So basically, you're sitting around watching the economy crumble as debt balloons and prices fall off a cliff. By suspending the gold standard, the Federal Reserve was able to issue more banknotes, lower interest rates, and pump more liquidity into the economy. Now people are spending more and investing more, which means more production, better-paid farmers, and lower unemployment. Or something like that. I've read and watched a bunch of explainers on this, and I'm still not terribly confident on the details, but the main problem with fiat currency, that's money not backed by a stable asset like gold, is that it leads to inflation, another thing I don't fully understand. As best as I can tell, inflation is not very good for rich people and bankers. Seems obvious if your assets are depreciating over time. And not so bad, maybe even good, for average and poor people. If your $100 is only worth $98 next year, no big deal. Especially if the process of inflation leads to less unemployment, lower interest rates allowing you to buy a car or a house, and the erosion of long-term debt as the value of a dollar decreases. But if you have $100 million, and next year you have $98 million, well, you just lost $2 million. And that's exactly what American financiers were thinking about in 1933, when FDR suspended the gold standard.
hard to overstate just how much turmoil the U.S. was in in the 1930s. The world, even. The Great Depression wasn't just in the States. Name a country, and they probably saw a massive economic downturn in 1929 and into the 30s. We were still recovering from the devastation of World War I, which killed 20 million people, and the Spanish flu, which killed 50 million people. There was already enormous income inequality before the Depression hit, and now Europe was seeing novel forms of government pop up. Communism in the USSR and fascism in Italy, Germany, Spain, Austria, Greece, and elsewhere. And with hindsight, we look back on fascism as this horrible, tyrannical monster. But at the time, to a lot of people, fascism was just a new political movement that maybe had some good ideas. You have to understand, in the 1930s, the world felt broken. And I don't mean Congress can't pass a bill or house prices are too high broken. 13 million people were out of work. Ketchup mixed with hot water was a whole meal. Used flower bags were your Sunday's finest. Altruistic suicide was common, especially among men who couldn't provide for their families. Roosevelt was even praised after his election for what some saw as the fascist tendencies he was displaying. After his inaugural address, one Italian newspaper wrote, President Roosevelt's words are clear and need no comment to make even the deaf hear that not only Europe, but the whole world feels the need of executive authority capable of acting with full powers of cutting short the purposeless chatter of legislative assemblies. This method of government may well be defined as fascist. But it wasn't just fascist Italy. People in the States were also excited about FDR's authoritarian rhetoric. The New York Herald Tribune published a story with the headline, For Dictatorship If Necessary. And the New York Daily News, then the largest circulating paper in the country, announced an unprecedented moratorium on criticizing the president for a year, writing, A lot of us have been asking for a dictator. Now we have one. His name is not Mussolini or Stalin or Hitler. It is Roosevelt. Dictatorship in crises was ancient Rome's best idea. The impression we get from various quarters is that practically everyone feels better already. Confidence seems to be coming back with a rush, along with courage. Still, Roosevelt was attacked from both the left and the right. On the left, socialists, communists, and populist Democrats accused him of being a capitalist in sheep's clothing. They weren't necessarily wrong. Who was more interested in protecting the banking industry than working people? As one communist writer at the time put it, Mr. Roosevelt is nothing more or less than a lightning rod for capitalism to protect it from danger. Again, not wrong. Louisiana governor and then-Senator Huey Long was especially critical of Roosevelt's decision to save only the largest banking institutions that had remained solvent through the crisis, and allowing all the others, mostly small banks with small depositors, to fail causing millions of working people to lose their life savings. Meanwhile, Roosevelt's critics on the right compared him to Joseph Stalin, calling him a dictatorial communist who would destroy the free market and individual liberties. They actually were wrong. Father Coughlin, the so-called father of hate radio, had initially supported Roosevelt's program, but by 1934 he had turned on him. 
Coughlin was increasingly obsessed with a secret cabal of Jewish bankers intent on world domination, and President Roosevelt, with his Jew deal, was their puppet master. But perhaps what was more alarming in terms of extremist politics at the time was the shirts. Inspired by Mussolini's black shirts and Hitler's brown shirts, various militia movements sprung up across the country. Many of them were composed of veterans, as was often the case in Europe. There were the khaki shirts, the silver shirts, a KKK group of black shirts, not very creative, find your own color, am I right? The gray shirts and the white shirts. I'm going to publish a separate episode on the various American fascist shirt movements of the 1930s on the Patreon account, and you can hear it for as little as $1 at patreon.com slash reaction podcast. But what's important about these movements is how closely they resembled the groups that had won Mussolini and Hitler their power in Europe. They were street gangs, with very theatrical presentation and uniforms, and they were composed of trained military men. Some added their own American twist by blending Protestant tradition with patriotic fervor. And they were everywhere. All of this was obviously very alarming to government officials, so Congress did what it does best. It formed a committee. Congressman Samuel Dickstein was a Democrat representing parts of New York City, including the heavily immigrant population of the Lower East Side. He was Jewish, and his family had escaped the pogroms of Europe. His district was quite left-leaning, and had even voted several socialists into office. Dickstein himself didn't shy away from criticism from the right, and often said, If you want to call me a socialist because I am advocating better housing, then that's what I must be. He was a fierce advocate for racial justice and the rights of immigrants, and before he was a congressman, he ran a private law practice that specialized in landlord-tenant disputes. He claimed to have represented 30,000 New Yorkers living in slums free of charge. As that number suggests, he was also known as a bombastic publicity hound, prone to exaggeration. He also liked challenging his fellow congressional representatives to fisticuffs, though I haven't been able to find out if he ever had any takers. Fun fact, in the 1990s, Soviet documents surfaced showing that Dickstein had spied on behalf of the USSR while he was in Congress, sharing what he knew about the actions of Russian, fascist, and pro-Tsarist movements that were fighting against the Bolsheviks. The Soviets said he was a huge pain in the ass, who always wanted way too much money for the services he provided. When Dickstein traveled to Europe in 1932, he was shocked by the extreme racism that he found in Berlin. But the real gut punch came when he returned home and realized that the same propaganda he'd found in Germany was circulating in the U.S. The chairman of the House Immigration Committee at the time told him that Nazi cells were cropping up across the country, raising money to pay for their literature. Then, in the summer of 1933, Nazi sympathizers showed up in his district and put on a rally where they goose-stepped through the immigrant neighborhood, harassing Jewish men, women, and children. The Friends of New Germany, a Nazi party composed mostly of German war veterans, was just forming in New York City and Chicago. They were mostly interested in getting pro-Nazi propaganda published in German newspapers and infiltrating non-political German-American organizations, 
But when they showed up in the streets of Manhattan wearing their uniforms of white shirts and black pants with black and red hats, Dickstein decided something needed to be done. As the new chairman of the House Immigration Committee, he decided to start an unofficial inquest into American Nazis. Then, when Congressional Democrats won a sweeping victory in 1934, Dickstein finally had the power to start up an official investigation. He and his fellow House reps formed the Special Committee on Un-American Activities Authorized to Investigate Nazi Propaganda and Certain Other Propaganda Activities, known more elegantly as the McCormick-Dickstein Committee. This is actually the original Committee on Un-American Activities, and it wasn't until Martin Dyes took over the committee in 1938 that it turned its full attention to commies. We'll do a whole series on the Dyes Committee sometime in the future. But Dickstein knew that, as a foreign-born Jew, there could be bad press and allegations of bias if he were to chair a committee investigating anti-Semitic fascist movements. Already, there were charges of a radical Jewish minority controlling Congress, so he felt that a Gentile was a better choice to lead the investigation. He recommended Representative John McCormick, an Irish Catholic Bostonian, to chair the committee, with Dickstein serving as vice chair. The main focus of the committee was to subpoena leaders of American fascist movements and discover how they were spreading propaganda. They uncovered some pretty startling things. Prominent PR firms were taking money from Nazi minister of propaganda Joseph Goebbels to improve the reputation of National Socialism in the U.S. German-Americans sat before the committee to openly declare their loyalty to Hitler and Nazism. One witness told the committee, Hitler represents the racial feelings of every German in the world, no matter where he is born or no matter where he lives. But in the process of uncovering Nazi propaganda and pro-Hitler sentiments, something a bit more alarming came to their attention. For weeks, the committee had been hearing rumors of a fascist plot bent on deposing the sitting president. And now they finally had a credible witness to the scheme a highly decorated and well-respected veteran of the Marine Corps, retired Major General Smedley Darlington Butler. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. If you like the show, please rate and review it, and consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. There you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at Reaction Podcast for episode updates and commentary on current events. Send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>